Why is Jesus the Isn't only the Bible way to get full of contradictions? What about those who never heard of Christ? Don't all religions basically teach the same thing? Are there answers to these questions? questions? NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has left Pluto far behind, but it's only just started sending photos back to Earth. Over Labor Day weekend, New Horizons started transmitting high-resolution photos of Pluto for us all to gawk at. A lot of them are things we'd seen before, but with more detail. And to think, these were the best pictures we had just five years ago. To the untrained eye, the new photos are really just pretty to look at. But of course, astronomers are all over them, saying some complicated things and some less complicated things. Let's see what they're homing in on. For now, they're mainly just pointing to the incredible variation in the types of terrain Pluto has. This part looks a lot like the kind of ice flows we might see on Earth, and NASA's report pointed to this area, which looks like it has dunes. That would be weird, because dunes imply wind, and Pluto doesn't have enough of an atmosphere for that. At least not anymore. One of the project leads said either Pluto had a thicker atmosphere in the past, or some process we haven't figured out is at work. It's a head-scratcher. You can check out the photos on NASA's website, and you might as well bookmark it. New ones will be coming in regularly for the next year. For Newsy, I'm Leah Becerra. Well, what do you think of that? This spaceship leaves Earth years ago, gets to Pluto in February, and just now we're seeing the photos. I love the whole idea. How cool is that? And there's more photos coming our way. I can hardly wait to see them. I'm really glad you're with us. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team at First Christian Church, and uh, I'm very glad you're here today. To those of you who are in the cafe, we want to say welcome to you. Can you welcome them all? Thanks to those of you in the cafe for, um, we're mindful that you're with us and watching over there, all right? So I want to spend some time with you in light of that conversation that we just had and saw on the screens about Pluto and the stuff that's coming back from there, because anytime that I hear about the universe and, you know, that Pluto is kind of the end of our solar system, sort of, and is it a planet, not a planet, and all that sort of stuff, wow, it goes beyond my ability to think. In ma- or to even imagine, and I know that others are like me, not only here today, but that around the world, people always think about, well, what's out there besides the earth? Like there's a fellow by the name of Yuri Milner. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, a billionaire from Russia, and he recently was evaluating his holdings, and he realized he had $100 million extra that he could do something with. I'm going, hello, could I meet you? But nonetheless, he had $100 million extra he wanted to give away. And um, to all of you who are billionaires here today, with all your extra $100 million that you say, I don't know what to do with, I've got some brilliant ideas. I really do. The Wayne Kent Retirement Fund might be good. Uh, The new auditorium might be good. All kinds of things. No. Anyways, what, what cause would you support if that was your case? And in his case... He got connected with Stephen Hawking. Do you know that name, the British cosmologist? He's a cosmologist. That's significantly different than a cosmetologist. I think you probably know that. And um, so they got together, and they're going to spend $100 million over the next 10 years to allow astronomers to look for extraterrestrial life in places outside our solar system, the thousand closest stars what can they find? And um, they're going to be part of this SETI program, which has been out in the California area for a long time. And this, the SETI program is the search for extraterrestrial 
intelligence. When announcing the initiative, Stephen Hawking said, in an infinite universe, there must be other occurrences of life. Or do our lights simply wander a lifeless universe? Either way, there's no bigger question. Is there life out there? Interestingly, NASA's chief scientist, Alan Stofan, said back in April, the discovery of alien life is only decades away. Now, decades going backwards, we didn't even have spaceships. I mean, it's only 60, 70 years that we even thought about going to space. Sputnik went up in the 50s, this big beach ball. That was, basically, that's what it was that went up, and the Russians put that up, and the space race was on. Just that was a few decades ago, and now we're told that not in hundreds of years, but NASA assumes that we're going to find alien life, or maybe they'll find us. Sometime in the next few decades. As a matter of fact, Stephen Hawking is a little bit worried about that. He said, any civilization that could hear about us could be billions of years ahead of us in terms of development. And if so, they'd be vastly more powerful. And they may not see us as humans or the earth as any more valuable than we see bacteria. He said, so consequently, in this $100 million they've got over the next 10 years, we are not sending any messages. We're only listening for them. I appreciate, I appreciate that till they figure out what it is, if there is there. See, the moment you talk about other life forms, you've got to go, okay, where did it all, if there's other forms out there, where did they come from? Do you have that question? And, and what have they got to say to us? And what might we learn? And how did it all come to exist? From my perspective this morning, hear this clearly, the existence of existence I'll say it again. The existence of existence points to a beginning of existence. What's that mean? How did existence start? Well, I have to ask that question as a result of existence existing. And I'll, say, I'll give you my bias as to how existence started. My bias is that it start, started with God. When I ask the question about where does existence come from, my, my supposition is that it started with God. That's my position versus those who would be, if you will, atheists, those who state there is no God. And there are those who hold that position. And if you're here today and you'd say, man, I'm, I'm an agnostic or perhaps I'm even an atheist, then I want to say to you, welcome. Welcome to First Christian Church today. Welcome to this discussion that we're going to have today. What we're doing right now is our congregation is in the middle of a, a sermon series called Room for Doubt. We've joined with 23 other churches, 24 churches in total around the community that are saying to our congregations and to the friends of our congregations, come and let's have discussions about some of the deep theological, the great word would be ontological, the theological questions, the ground of our being discussions about where do we come from and what, is it, what does it mean? And if, wherever we came from, what does it mean that we came from there? You can put it this way, that the six weeks that we're looking at this is really, we're trying to answer this question, this Jesus stuff that Christians hold on to, and this business of Christianity. Is it workable? Is it tenable? Is it sustainable in a scientific and technical era like the 21st century? Does it make sense? And not only does it make sense, but will it make sense for the future as well? 
So last week, we saw how Scripture affirmed questions. We discovered the Bible points people to use their intellect to ask deep questions about life, about faith. And I said that Christianity invites both believers and skeptics alike to ask very deep questions. And one such question, after last week we said, questions are valid, then it seems the first question should be, when it comes to these sorts of matters, is, is there a God? Now, I don't want us today to specifically answer, is God found in Jesus Christ? We'll deal with that in the days ahead as to whether or not Jesus is God's representative on earth and whether or not he was God in the flesh and those sort of things. My hope instead today is just to provide you with enough provocation, if you will, that would help you to consider moving from any sort of atheistic position or agnostic position to someone who could believe in God. The existence of God is a possibility. That's all we're doing today. We went from questions last week being valid. Today, can we say, well, based on the questions I have and based on the information that's out there, can we believe there's a God? And I'm aware that choosing a theist position or a deist position, choosing to say there is a God, is not mandatory to be human. Humans can think and reason, and we're called. The Bible calls us to do that. And then some can choose to say, I cannot see any evidence that points to God, let alone a Christian, uh, let alone a Christian God. And there are those who would choose to be atheists, and I get that. And there are many with that understanding. And as I say that, please hear that my, my comments today are by no means meant to sound to be anti-science or some diatribe against and where, which I would want to cast scientists as villains. Absolutely not. When Christians do that, that doesn't help the cause, our cause, if you will. And I don't think it's right regardless. Because all of us, no matter where we are in the faith continuum, we lean into science very quickly when we need to and want to, right? Last December, I had some heart issues. I ended up in the hospital. They put three stints in various veins and arteries within my heart. And you know what? I leaned in very quickly when we found out there was a problem. What we do, we leaned into science's understanding of my heart. And if scientists hadn't done work prior to my arriving at the hospital, I would have been in a significantly different place than I am today. We're in this room today, and we have people in the cafe today, and they can hear, we can hear and hear, because I have this little thing attached to my ear, this little microphone, and somebody, a scientist or a group of scientists in the past, collectively figured out how to take speech patterns and how to take sound waves and translate, transmit them into this little thing called here, and then how to make... Does it seem odd to you that a voice can go through wires? I don't get how that works. Scientists do. I don't understand how they can put light in this little glass thing, you know, put some wires together and put some electricity to it, and light comes out. How does that work? Now I can't see a thing after looking up there. <laughs> but I, what I want you to hear is that... I th what does that say? No. Not everyone automatically believes in the existence of God. I get that. And I think for some people that's a fair position to take. I would like to give you two reasons today why I would choose to disagree with that position, okay? First of all, I want to touch upon briefly, and then the second one we're going to expand a little bit longer. Two reasons why I believe that God exists. Two points of evidence where you can say, okay, it looks to me, based on what I can discover and what people can see, point to the existence of God. First one is this. If there is no God, how do you account for the basic morality that is found within all human beings? When I say the basic morality, human beings know the difference between good and evil. And despite the individuality of individuals, 
despite the significant differences between differing human communities in terms of race and culture, and despite the differences of language between people of different times, 300 years ago, or different spaces, the U.S. versus China versus Fiji, all different languages being spoken, despite the differences of all of those different patterns of individual cultures or individual lives, there is still a moral code that is stamped on the souls of each individual. All individuals seem to know that if you come to try and kill my child, I'm going to find that abhorrent. And I'm going to do all I can to push you away in whatever means possible to stop unwarranted and indiscriminate killing. You're not going to do that. Where did that sense of evil come from? That's wrong. Where did that sense of it is good to protect our family come from? It is good to do things that are right for other people. Where did the sense of good and evil come from? I believe the common denominator of that moral code that is written in the lives of individuals was written by God himself. Now, we're going to leave that discussion aside for a few minutes because I want to spend a little more time on the second reason that I believe God exists, and that's this. That the universe is simply too complicated to be a product of a big bang that is, that is brought about or precipitated by nothing or by no one. Let me say it again. Second reason why I believe there's a God is that the universe is too complicated to simply be a product of a Big Bang that was precipitated by no one or nothing. So, in order for us to talk about this, for those who are Christians in the room, can you set aside or just hold in tension the understanding of what the Bible says, how the world was created? Genesis and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to come back to that. But can we just talk about the Big Bang for a few minutes? Because it seems to me that the Big Bang is quite compatible with Christian thinking. If you can look at what, even what Isaiah says. In the book of Isaiah, it's about halfway through the Bible, okay? It's going to be on the screen. Isaiah, writing 2,600 years before us today, asks a rhetorical question that I think all of us ask. And that is, he says, first of all, that God asks, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? In other words, who gets to look me eye to eye or go toe to toe with me? Is there an answer to that? And then Isaiah, in response to that, gives the, a description of what he understands God to be. He says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Go outside tonight and just look up and see everything that's there. Who created all these that are in the heavens? Who brings out, the, he, whoever it was, he brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. They're all there. Where'd they all come from is what he's asking. Do you not know, have you not heard, that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, is the one who made this, is basically what he's saying. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. 2,600 years ago, a man writing says, I've gone outside and I've looked at the stars. And it's a question that I think is viable and still holds up today, 2,600 years this is 2,600 years later, it's the same question we're asking. How did all of that get up there, and how is it that it works so well? How did the cosmos get tuned and put together and designed so... How did it get so finely tuned? Those who believe in God answer this way, that the fine-tuning of the universe points to a fine-tuner. That's it simply. 
Now, is that an absurd response? Well, before we start talking about the fine-tuning of the universe or the cosmos, let's simply start with the idea of how the universe was created as science understands it today. Did it start with a big bang that had no ignition giver? That seems to be a common thinking amongst the science community at present, that there was a big bang that just occurred. Now, I need to tell you that the Big Bang Theory, as we know it today, was not always considered plausible by the scientific community. That's because prior to Einstein and Edwin Hubble, scientists assumed that the, that the universe was static, that, in that it had always been in existence. You could think of it this way. The assumption, you take two lines that are parallel, okay? And if two lines are parallel, do they ever meet? No. They're always, I mean, they can go from here to where? Eternity and still be parallel, right? And so the science community prior to the 1920s basically thought that the universe was static and that it was two parallel lines going along like that. Along came Einstein with his theory of relativity. And then Edwin Hubble and a few other people began measuring what was taking place in outer space because science had given them the instruments that they could do that. And suddenly they discovered this, that the, the universe was no longer parallel that the lines were no longer parallel, the outer edges of the universe were actually growing. In more recent years, we've learned that that growth, while it's still going on, is actually slowing down. So if something is going out like this, but it's slowing down, what's going to happen sometime in the future? What happens? It has to end, right? But for where we are right now, Einstein then pointed, well, what are we going to do with where we are right now, given that the universe was like this? Because that means if you look back in history in the universe, what happens? You come to a place where it began. That was absolutely mind-boggling for the scientists of the 1920s. It was stunning from my perspective. The fact that science says that the Big Bang occurred and it came out of nothing, if you will, we'll come to that in a minute, that idea of a Big Bang is quite compatible in my mind with what the Bible says about creation. Again, we'll leave that alone for just a minute. But I want to kind of tease it out there for you, okay? Because Steve Hawking, as he's looked at this in, in Great Britain, he says that the Big Bang occurred like that. As a matter of fact, faster than that. Because this, this noise of me making this to get to you where you're sitting or to you in the cafe it's got to go, where it's got to go through wires takes a fraction of a second, right? Because of just the speed of sound. Well, his understanding is that the Big Bang occurred faster than I can do this. As a matter of fact, you want to know how fast it was in terms of a second? It's a point zero, 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 zero with 34 zeros, one. That's how quickly the universe came into existence. That quickly faster than I can slap my hands together. That's one thing. But on the other hand, to say how, where, how big it was immediately was to say, when that occurred, it began expanding quickly. Within that space of moment, it began expanding at the rate of one, not one plus one plus one to the, where it was now three times bigger within that space, but actually one with 30 zeros following it. That's how quickly it went from nothing to there. It would be like you having a coin in your pocket and saying, okay, expand in the universe. And you'd say, well, that can't happen. Well, big bang, the Big Bang, we say, that's what happened. I think it was caused by God. Scientists are, out, are still up in the air about that. To me, it's, 
I'm, I'm going to give you an illustration that in some ways may seem a little... Well, I'll just show you, okay? So say I had... Well, I do have some mini tricks. Morning fiber. Oh, that's really good. You guys want some? Little breakfast? Come on, put your hand in there, okay? Breakfast number seven or two or maybe number one. You, I saw that hand move. I saw that hand move. You're like, we're going to pass. Okay. So say we put some tricks in this bucket. A little bit of fiber and color. All right? Then I've got, since, um, since computers are made with zeros these days, right? Zeros and ones. I got some zeros. Cheerios. Oh, I like the ones with sugar. They're much better. No, no. So I'm going to pour all those in there, okay? All right. I've got, my, I've got my fiber and color. I've got some zeros. And then I'm going to put in some, some alphabet, okay? So I've got a D, or maybe that's a P, I don't know. Here's an H and a C. And I'm going to put all my alphabet into this bucket. I've got a lot of it in here. T's and Z's and J's. And they're all going in here like this. Okay, and then so say I mix it all up. What am I going to have at the end of this? No, I'm not. Not at all. Give it a million years and keep doing it? All right. No, apparently the Big Bang, I'm going to quickly have whatever I want it to be. I've got myself a dictionary. Some color, some fiber, and some letters. And some of you guys are going, well, that's absurd, Wayne. Well, sure it is. But no, I, this is what I believe. If I put all that stuff in there, in the primordial mix, it's all going to come out like this, right? Again, I'm not trying to make science to be a villain here. Hear me out. We lean into science. But you're saying, oh, Wayne, you planned it ahead of time. You already had the dictionary in there. No, I didn't. And you're going, you're being stupid. <laughs> well, again, in fairness to the scientific community, it seems to me that a Big Bang is very plausible since that's what the evidence points to. The evidence points to that the universe had that beginning point. And Scripture says that God said, let there be, and it created the heavens and the earth. I don't struggle with those two things coming together and lining up with one another. See, science says that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Things don't pop into existence without a cause. It, science itself operates on the principle that if there's, some, there's an event here, something caused it over here. If we've got a fire over here, there was a spark here. If we've got a chemical reaction over here, which is frankly a fire is simply a chemical reaction, right? Then chemicals had to be brought together over here to create the, to create the reaction. Einstein himself said this, the scientist is possessed by a sense of universal, universal causation. So how did the universe come into being? Well, I want you to watch the screens for a little bit, see if, I can't, if we can't make it a little clearer for you. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? 
One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. That's where we are today. I believe the cause of the universe was God. It's also my conviction that the fine-tuning of the universe points to God as the intelligent fine-tuner. Scriptures again, look to the heavens, lift up your eyes, who created everything you see? 
Who is it that brings out the starry host one by one and calls them by name? Who is it has power great enough and mighty strength to make certain that not one of them is missing? Who can make all of that not only appear, but then to work properly? Has to be God. Uh, maybe I could explain fine-tuning to you this way. Can you put your finger like this? Okay, everybody has to do this, all right? Because I'm going to make sure everybody's awake. All right? Heavy subject today. Now, with your finger like this, can you go like that? You are finely tuned machines. <laughs> what about with your less dominant hand? Can you do it with the other hand? It's a little harder, but you're still able to pull that off, right? Or can you do this with your one hand, all right? And this with the other hand. How is it that you get to do that? Or how is it that you get to bring them together and make them fit? Oh, my. You are a finely tuned bunch of folk. From a Christian point of view, the Big Bang and our ability to be finely tuned and the rest of the universe to be finely tuned, the Big Bang, in light of all of that, is a compelling scientific description of a biblical doctrine that theologians have used for centuries. It's called, um, it's called creation. Creation came ex nihilo. Creation came out of nothing with the Word of God. The very first words of Genesis say this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Could that be the Big Bang? With causation? I believe it can be. That's why we learned what we learned in the video. That, and that, that as this idea, the Big Bang came, out, came to be, um, many of the scientific thinkers didn't like it because they didn't like the theological implications that came with it. It gave too much support to the idea of a supernatural creation. But it seems to me we, we need to follow the evidence where it leads. And if you would be with me today and say, I've come to the place, okay, I can see, last week asking questions, I can see today that there is a plausibility that there is a God. What should you do next? Well, Scripture has some answers to that. The Bible has answers to that. There's a situation in Acts chapter 26 where the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, the Apostle Paul, who is one of the... <clears throat> Those Cheerios were, dry, Cheerios were dry, weren't they? We needed a little milk. <laughs> so the Apostle Paul, who's one of the main thinkers of, the, of Scripture, is visiting with a man by King Agrippa. And he's describing, Paul is describing how he went from being non-Christian to Christian. And King Agrippa is listening in, and he's a pretty astute fellow, and he realizes that Paul is in essence saying, you should be moving the same direction. And he says to Paul, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And I like, I mean, surely Paul had a smirk when he said, well, I don't know about how quickly I can do it. But I do pray this. I pray that both you and everyone in the room will come to the same place that I am. And that would be my prayer and my hope for you today. Because today I've simply asked you to consider a reality as a, or let me say, consider what I choose to be reality as a possibility on your part. That is it feasible that there could be a God? Because if there is a God, then I'm convinced life change is coming to you. I believe the possibility of an existence of God and then letting that become a reality, which I do, invariably points to the existence of God, the God of Scripture, namely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of people who call themselves Christians and who follow Jesus Christ. He is the God who creates, who loves, 
and who we worship today. So if you're a Christian, you stand on those truths. If not, I ask you to seriously examine. Follow the evidence where it leads, because I'm convinced it will lead you not only to belief in God, but eventually to faith and friendship with Jesus Christ. And so what should you do with all of that today? Then here's some ideas. Hang with us through the remainder of this series. We looked at questions last week. Today we're looking at the existence of God. Next week, okay, the next step question we need to ask is what about the Bible? Is the Bible true? Isn't it full of myths, half-truths? We'll look at that next week. Secondly, second idea, if you're not in a discussion group and you'd like to get in one, they're still being formed. You could visit with some folk out at the, uh, recept- at the welcome, welcome desk. And then thirdly, I want to remind you or let you know that on October 4th in the evening, that's a Sunday evening, we're getting all 24 churches together at Kirkland Auditorium. And Mark Middleburg is coming in, and we want to invite our congregations and our friends to a straight-up question and answer night. It's going to be like direct line where you get to ask any question you want to ask, and we'll see how we, can, how we do in that, okay? So I'll be moderating it. Mark will be there along with some theologians and some scientists to see what we can learn together. That's on October 4th. Please put it on your calendar. But before we get to all of that, I, I want to conclude my time with you today by telling you of um, a man who I think took a journey uh, intellectually and spiritually that I suspect some here today need to take. Anthony Flew is his name. He was a giant in the 20th century when it came to philosophical thought. Born in 1923 in London, England. Uh, His father was a Methodist minister. Uh, His biographers say that at 15 years of age, Anthony Flew decided that there was no God and he declared himself to be an atheist. An absolutely brilliant mind, educated at both Oxford and Cambridge. If you could see the list of where he lectured around the world, you'd go, man, that's a pedigree because he was at one major university after another throughout his whole career. He, um, his argument was that you should presuppose atheism until the evidence of God surfaces. And since he didn't have any evidence of God, he was an atheist. I understand that thinking. He also said that since the beginning of my philosophical life, I followed the policy of Plato's Socrates. We must follow the argument wherever it leads. And so he was a man who said, I see no argument for the things of God, therefore there is no God. But his study particularly later in life, began to have an impact, as did science as it was developing throughout the 20th century. After turning 70, he began to rethink his position in the argument of atheism. And he characterized, he says, I'm an atheist, but suddenly now he said, I'm leaning up a bunch of question marks. I'm actually likely with lampposts. I'm leaning against them. And I think that's the way a lot of us approach life. We've got some things that we're pretty confident of, but by golly, there are some questions that come with that as well. As he got into the 1980s and in the 1990s, he died in, in the mid-2000s, mid uh, he ran into a problem with what science was discovering about DNA codes. And as he got to the human genome and the complexity of the biological world really threw him for a loop. It was one thing to say all that operated up there, but when he began to, as science in the late 20th century began to really understand biology to greater degrees, he said, The fine-tuning of organisms point to some sort of designer. And so he moved away from being an atheist atheist to a deist or a theist, if you will, belief in God. He didn't accept Christianity at that point. As a matter of fact, we have no knowledge to indicate that he became a Christian before his death. But he did reject a lifetime of atheism based on the evidence. My prayer and request of you today is, would you consider the same approach? 
So with that, let's do this. I'm aware that I need to, as, as the pastor of the church and the speaker today, kind of turn the page from this message into something that we do as a congregation around here. And throughout this message, I've wanted to be very clear that all people are welcome here, and I want all people to feel welcome into what we're about to do right now. And so in order for you to understand that, can I take just two minutes to explain what's about to happen? Our congregation is about to move from me preaching to a time when we're going to eat and drink little pieces of bread and drink from a little cup. This is something that Christians do on a regular basis. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we'd, watch, we'd invite you to watch and see how this goes so you know what's going on. Here's why we do this. We know, that, we know what happened in Jesus' life on the night just before he died. Scripture tells us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He had disciples around him. He took bread and he broke and he said, this is my body broken for you. And we're going to have communion together. We're going to have, some people call it the Eucharist. Some people call it um, the Lord's table. And we're going we're to do what he did. He broke bread and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Scripture says that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And he asked them to drink and to remember him. The Apostle Paul, when he's talking about this event, said that whenever we eat and whenever we drink, we remember the Lord's death until he comes and that we're supposed to do this on a regular basis. The reason for that is, so you understand, is that from a Christian perspective, we believe that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, our sin is seen by God. But that the supreme act of Jesus' sacrificial death is that our sin is forgiven. And that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He literally sees the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's body over our lives. And so what the Apostle Paul said to do is to eat and drink. And as often as you eat and drink, you do it in remembrance of Jesus. So we want to remember what he did for us. There may be some in the room today or if you're in the cafe and you'd say, ah, I don't know. Well, I'd like to do this. I'd like to pray for all of us. And as I pray, I'd like to take all this stuff for the message and where we are in this service right now and see if I can bring it all together and pray for you and for me that God's forgiveness would cover us. And maybe maybe you're like, um, I'm, I'll step over the line of faith, sort of. Maybe I'll, I'll test the water. And maybe in this prayer, you can step over and say, I want that forgiveness in my life. You know what you become then? You may not understand it fully, but that, that's at the point you become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's that point that you become a Christian. And so I'd like to pray for us all right now. Let's do that. God, we've covered a lot of territory here today. And um, Lord, I thank you for the role that science plays in our, in our modern world. For the way in which um, medical science and earth sciences and mathematics and Lord the way in which computers are science-based, Lord. And we, our lives are changed because of all of that. And we don't live the same way that people lived 50 years ago, 150 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And yet, Lord, we still have the same basic questions, and that is the, the reason for our existence and how did it come to be. I thank you, Lord, there are many here today who proclaim that you are God and that you as God sent Jesus Christ. We ask God that his sacrificial death would be applied to our lives and that we would indeed step across this line of faith, God, and today have that, that sacrificial death applied to our lives for the forgiveness of our sins so that when you see us, you don't see our sins, but you see us forgiven by your graceful work in Jesus Christ. 
We pray this in his name, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.